0: Well welcome everybody on uh, on new year 's Eve. I was joking with somebody earlier. This kind of feels like like the group that 's probably not going to stay up till midnight tonight it's the <laughs> People who come to church early in the morning, uh, I am so glad. I'm one of those, right, by the way. I'm probably not going to make it, but uh, I'm, I'm glad that we get to spend our, uh, our New Year's Eve together like this. We want to start off this morning with a little bit of an insight into what happens in my world, in my life. Uh, every year, right after my wife's birthday, my home experiences this very delicate, very subtle transformation right, where some of the decor starts to shift out of fall and starts to get a little more first generically winter, and then uh, a little while later, without even really realizing it, it's just full-on like Christmas took place. So we've got Little decorations that get put up, like making spirits bright, and I'm like, okay, I'm into that. I like it. It's getting kind of cloudy out. The decorations on uh, around the house, on the table, kind of start to like the bowl of pine cones, and then it's like the bowl of ornaments. A little while later, uh, these little guys start appearing all over the place. Who knows what that's about? But like this whole thing kind of happens. And it was like probably 15 years into our marriage before I, I realized that it was happening to me. I just kind of like figured little elves came out at night and just kind of redecorated the house. I was like, eh, that's convenient. I like that. Something else you should probably know about how this happens because it's so subtle and it's, and it's so delicate. Um, this process begins, I said after my wife's birthday, her birthday is in October, Church. <laughs> so you just start to do the math and you're like, I think this guy's late for decorating next year. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Some of you have like this argument about whether like the tree goes up, the ornaments go out before Thanksgiving or not. That, that's a lost cause. That battle has been fought. It's been lost. Thanksgiving is just a part of the Christmas season now. But we drew the line at Halloween. We're like, no. All right. This is where we take our last stand at, at Halloween decorations and mixing together with Christmas. Uh, reason why I mentioned this is... Uh, Is I think I think that the way that God prepares us for Christmas, the way that God uh, sets the table, is a lot like Christmas in my house. Like He's behind the scenes and He's decorating. He's kind of getting out the the Christmas items without really us even realizing it all the time. Uh, If you've been tracking along Encounter for the last little while, you know that we're in this series called Broken Saviors and what the series is about. is taking a look at the biblical uh, story of the, the book of Judges. And it's, it's weird, right? Just as a reminder, uh, we're in December and we're reading about the Judges. And it feels a little bit like reading Judges in December is like watching Die Hard as a Christmas movie. And it just, it doesn't totally work. But, but then you kind of like see it through the right lens. And you're like, oh yeah, it does. Like, like it takes place, you know. And, and there's Christmas decorations kind of around. And, and God is at work. And he's, he's setting the table. And he's decorating for christmas only what we experienced last week christmas time we did that and and we gathered around and we did oh holy night and we did the candlelight service we did the oxen lowing and gabriel coming to mary the shepherds keeping watch over the flocks in those days caesar augustus issued a decree we did jesus little seven pounds six ounce jesus in the manger right the whole the whole the christmas story but like today, we, we get to like pull back the curtain on that just a little and say, man, that story was hundreds, even thousands of years in the making. And today we get to see one of those stories about how God was setting the table, about how God was decorating for Christmas long before anybody was even paying attention. And we're going to do that by... By dropping in on a few different stories, one of the story we're going to hang out most is the story in the book of Ruth. It's right after the Judges, but we're going to give us a buy on the broken saviors kind of thing because it happens in the time of Judges. So asterisks, but we're going to, we're going to share the story and cast it maybe in a in a new light as a Christmas story. Um, the story takes place and it's it's a spiritually dark time, and there's no way we can get around that. But what do we always say? We say that the light shines brightest. In the dark and this story is a perfect example of that it's such a bleak time it's such a dark time but Ruth just jumps off from the pages and provides so much hope in the dark Uh, I want to make a note on that word hope because I discovered this earlier this week and I thought it was so cool I needed to share it it's a lot of my life it's like hey I gotta gotta share this with my friends Uh, the first time that the word hope appears in the Bible is actually in the book of Ruth Ruth chapter 1 And you dig into that That that, that was new information to me Uh, What I did know And I've shared before And we just kind of come back to it again and again Is when we talk about hope in this story When we talk about the hope of Christmas About the Savior who isn't broken The Savior who isn't going to Who's going to fully and finally rescue us When we talk about hope It's biblical hope is different than worldly hope Than the English word hope Because usually when we think about hope In the English language We think about it defined as something that that I'm not sure if it's going to happen, but I really, really hope it does. I really, really want it to. The Lions winning the Super Bowl. I hope that the Lions win the Super Bowl. But I'm also pretty sure that the NFL is going to do everything in their power to make sure that that's not going to happen. Some of you saw the game. Yeah. I hope that the Lions win the Super Bowl. I'm not sure it's going to happen. I just I really, really want it to. You see how we use hope. Biblical hope is different, though, because biblical hope is grounded and framed in something else entirely. Biblical hope is something that I'm confident will happen. It just hasn't happened yet. And so biblical hope is something that you can reorient it, recalibrate, redo your entire life, restructure your entire life in order to build it upon this hope. I'm confident that it will happen. It just hasn't happened yet. As we move through the year and we conclude it now on December 31, New Year's Eve, and we hope that good things are yet to come. We hope that we get to meet God someday. We hope that He's going to put everything together in its place. We don't just really, really want it to happen. It's so important that we recognize that it will happen. We will meet Him. He will put it together. It just hasn't happened. Yet, and that is the story of Ruth. Let's uh, let, let's jump into it. Uh, you can follow along in the Bible. We're going to also have the uh, the words words up on the screen behind me. But what we're going to do is start off in uh, in, in verse one. Of chapter one in the book of Ruth. So in the in the days when the judges rule, that's my buy that I get. We got the uh, yeah. Um, you didn't see it on the conference monitor, but we're good. All right. In the days when the judges ruled, that's my buy that I get to uh, I get to do a Ruth story in the Broken Savior series. Uh, there was a famine. Come back to that in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Come back to that. The man's name was Elimelech, and the wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his kids were very difficult to pronounce, and they're going to die soon. Anyway, so we're going to move. On. <laughs> Spoiler alert for those of you who haven't read it. And this, it's a ble- it's such a bleak story, okay? And it was just lightning, lightning version of the whole thing. Um, two chapters in the book of Ruth. But there's, it's just absolutely loaded with meaning. We get two chapters in the book of, uh, two verses in the first book, a uh, couple of verses in Ruth. And days in the judge's rule, so we know in those days Israel had no king. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And the subtext on that one is people did what they want when they want with whom they want as long as nobody got hurt. And the book of Judges is just everybody getting hurt always, all the time. That philosophy doesn't work out like ever. So while all this is going on, Israel had no king. There was a famine in the land. So this man named uh, uh, in in Bethlehem. There's a fam Beth uh, uh, Bet is house Le is of. Chem is bread. There's uh, famine in the house of bread. That's bleak. Together with his wife and two sons went to live in the country of Moab, their sworn enemy, in a very long ways away. Oh, by the way, the man's name was Elimelech. Wife's name was Naomi. Elimelech, my God is king. Naomi, sweet, honey, pleasant, something like that. So just to kind of step back in and recap, in probably the darkest time in Israel's history, my God is king and his wife, Pleasant, laughed to go live with their enemies while there was a famine in the house of bread. Like I said, it's a bleak story. It's such a bleak story. Um, while they were away in the house uh, in, the, in the land of Moab, living with their, with their sworn enemies. Uh, kids do what, what, what kids do. They grew up, the boys, they grew up, they got married. And they married a couple of Moabite women. This wasn't the plan. This wasn't God's plan. Not that he's against interracial marriage or anything like that. It's just it, God kind of knew that when you marry somebody, you marry their culture, you marry the people, you marry the beliefs that they have. And in this case, the boys married a couple of young ladies who are Moabite women. And they came along with their Moabite gods. And he forbid it. He didn't want it to happen. But I mean, it, it's a story. It happened. And then tragically, the two boys, they die off. Elimelech, my god is king, he dies. All the boys in the story die off. And was so Naomi, mother-in-law now, with her two daughters-in-laws. One of them was named Orpah. Fun fact. Oprah was originally supposed the talk show host. Um, Oprah was supposed to be named Orpa, but like somebody mixed up the birth certificate, like when she was born. True story. And, uh, and it was Oprah instead of Orpa, and uh, this just like mom just kind of went with it. And now it's uh, kind of a famous. That's not related at all. Um, <laughs> she also like falls off from history like immediately because Na- Ruth. Oh, sorry, Naomi. Naomi sits her daughters-in-law down and go, Hey, guys. There's nothing for you in Bethlehem. I'm going to head back because things aren't good here. Everybody died. Only death happens in Moab. So I'm going to go back home. You guys are still young. You you know, you have a shot. You can get married again. You can like live a happy life. You guys should stay here. But meanwhile, I'm going to go home. And Orpah says, sounds great. I'll see you later. Probably not. And she stays behind. Ruth, though, Ruth, though, attaches, like barnacles herself up right to her mother-in-law, Naomi, which I got to say probably never happened. Again in the history of humanity, but like Ruth comes right up alongside Naomi and gives us What could be some of the most beautiful lines of scripture? No, no, beautiful lines of ancient literature that humanity has preserved in the last thousands of years. Here it is from Ruth chapter 1 verse uh, 16 Um, This whole thing is like this thing, okay Uh, Ruth replied, don't urge me To leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful that when I officiate weddings, a lot of times the couple, like, wants to use that as their marriage verse. And I just can't help but point out to them how appropriate it is. Especially because, like, while you're up there, you know, let's look at the original context. This was said between Ruth and her mother-in-law, and your future mother-in-law is like right over there. You can go ahead and mention it to her right now, and couples love that. They never get tired of that joke. Okay. I had somebody one time say like, dude, I know, I know that it was a mother-in-law, and you told me that when you marry a person, you also marry into their entire family. So I think it works anyway, and we're going to go with it. And I was like, I love your biblical literacy. This This is good, absolutely. Um, so they come back, and can you imagine the scene of Naomi coming into town and everybody's like, what is that? Could that be? And then who's, who's that with her coming back? Who's the stranger? And it never tells us like exactly how long it's been, but just reading through the story, the cadence of it, you kind of get the impression it's been a very long time. And so we have a young woman, Ruth, and her, let's say, chronologically advanced mother-in-law, and they're coming down, and they're like, I I think it's Naomi. Man, we haven't seen her in years, maybe even decades, since the the kids were little. And she comes into town, and this is all she has to say. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Uh, Naomi, uh, sweet, pleasant. Don't call me sweetie. Don't call me honey. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life bitter. That's the meaning of Mara. I am angry. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me sweet? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. You see see what she's doing? She's taking everything that happened in her life, everything that's wrong in her life, and she's laying it at the feet of God and saying, you did this to me. You took away my husband. You took away my sons. You took away my other daughter-in-law. You took away everything from me. Why call me sweet when I am not? She's like, she's gone. She has left the faith. She is out. She is disassociating. There is no God. And if there was a God, he doesn't answer prayers. There is no God. And if there is a God, he does not know my name. There is no God. And if there is a God, he can't possibly care about Me. she tries to change her name to make herself forgotten about entirely. And the thing in this story that is just so beautiful, and I think one of the reasons why it's been preserved throughout thousands of years, is because it's a perfect microcosm of the people of God. In those times, it's a perfect microcosm, I think of a lot of us, at different valleys in our lives. Don't call me sweet. Not anymore. Not after the accident. Don't call me sweet. Not anymore. Not after the loss. I'm so bitter. And if I could point out the irony of a woman who is just trying her absolute best to be forgotten about in history. And to just simply point out that it is 33-ish, 3300 years later and we're still talking about her. Because what happened to her happened at the epicenter of what God is about to do. Don't call me sweet. Call me bitter because that's where I am because I am done with God. She gave up on God, but here's the thing. God never gave up on her. And something's about to happen. <laughs> they, had a, they had a practice um, designed for, uh, for women in this situation who had, who had really no way to, to make a living what they would do is they would, they would harvest their fields in probably the most uh, inefficient way. They would harvest a square field uh, in a circle. And you're like, that's gonna leave something at the edges, exactly. Uh, you harvested the field kind of inside out, and then you'd leave the edges uh, cleared for people, beggars, to come along and to, and to help themselves. Uh, it was barley season, so that was what the, the crop was. And so people like Ruth could come through and, and just kind of gather everything up from the, from the corners, uh, g- gleaning along the way. You can probably imagine um, the people who would typically do this kind of work are kind of uh, rough around the edges, let's say. It's incredibly dangerous sort of work, but like what other option did they have? What, what, what else were they gonna do? So Ruth was out here and she was gleaning around on the on the edges and she would bring her haul back home and her mom, Naomi, wanting to be called Mara, w- would look at her and go, Ruth, where did you get all that barley? She's coming back with like these Santa Claus size like totes, you know, these, these bags He's coming back and mom is like you've got to be kidding me How does this happen and she's like well mom there's a boy Now I get it okay now and and the boy kind of has this crush on her and they're kind of they're doing this they're doing this sort of dance Except for what he sees in her is interesting. You can listen to it in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Boaz says, I, I have been told all about what you have done. Her reputation went before her, not as a Moabite, But for everything else for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband how you left your father and mother and your homeland You left Moab behind and came to live with the people you didn't know before and then maybe the most Incredible part of this entire story takes place in the next line He says may the Lord repay you for what you have done May you be richly rewarded by the Lord the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge He's essentially looking at her and praying this blessing over her. And I just, I want to like take a step back from the story and read it as a historical event and think, how in the world does this happen but for the grace of God? Because sometimes we, we look at this story and we see it through the lens of like this Hollywood epic. You know, like... Uh, <laughs> Like a Hallmark movie, you know, where like the, the, the busy businesswoman in New York City, like, you know, goes back home and falls in love with this, you know, boy that she knew back in back in high school or middle school or who never left. You know, I've seen a couple of them along the way. We, we tend to look at stories like this through the lens of like The Bachelor, where like, He's the eligible Boaz, you know, and he's, he's got some money, right? He's, he's doing pretty well for himself. He's got multiple fields, we're told. He's got people working. He's got downlines, people uplines, however that works. He's a rich dude, and all. he's eligible bachelor. All these women are kind of scrambling to get a rose from him. I'm told this is how it works on the bachelor. I don't know. But the thing about it is, I'm pretty sure on shows like that, like the women the, will, will seclude themselves and spend hours in hair and wardrobe getting ready to make that first impression. Keep this in mind. Ruth, when we drop in, when, when Boaz starts to like, I think maybe we should protect her. I kind of like this girl, you know, make sure she can glean the absolute most. When Boaz starts crushing on her, she's dumpster diving in rags. It's desert. It's hot. She's sweating. She's broke. She doesn't have time for the gown, for the hair and makeup. She doesn't have any of that sort of stuff. I think that makes it one of the most incredible parts of this entire story. That's like he falls in love with her. Not because of what maybe she was showing on the outside, but because of what he was told about her character dating all the way back from her time in Moab. Like I said, it's a a pretty beautiful story. And so mother-in-law kind of gets the sense of like, hey, all right. This is how it's gonna be, I get it. Uh, we need to, we need to get him to put a ring on it, right? Like, we need to lock this guy down. He's crushing on you, let's make this permanent. Um, Ruth, we don't have very many options here, and God just gave us a big one in Boaz. So land that fish, Ruth. Uh, you, you're going to have to propose to him, which is, it's, it's wild. 3,500 years ago, we have this this woman, and she teaches her all about this, uh, this kind of cultural custom. It's called a kinsman redeemer, guardian redeemer. And it says, essentially, you know, it turns out like he's, Boaz, a distant relative of my late husband. Don't worry about the details. But there's this cultural thing where, where a relative might just step in and protect you, protect us. And so like, Ruth, you have an opportunity to go talk, you know, make your pitch shoot your shot, and let's see how it works out. The guardian redeemer, the kinsman redeemer, has a few options. Let's get those things on the screen here. Um, They did a few things. The first thing they did was protect an impoverished family. They could give them a loan, pay a bill. They could purchase lost property, especially if it was lost because of death, maybe a debt, uh, if somebody was a, a gambler. Number three, they could redeem relatives sold as slaves to pay a deed. Lights will come back on soon. Don't worry about that. Provide an heir. And the last one was to provide an heir for a male relative, which is like the Most extreme case of all of them, providing that uh, male relative. Very important in the story. The kinsman redeemer, the guardian redeemer, could say no. That was an option. Figure that out. That's all right. (laughs) Boaz says, all right, I'm in. I'll do it. But there's a catch. I'm not the closest one to you. There's a little piece of property at play here. So he wanted to make everything, done everything on the up and up. There's a closer relative to you. You gotta go talk to him first. And so he goes outside the city gate where the business is done and he talks to the relative and he says, okay, you have this this option. Uh, Verse five in chapter four, Boaz said, (laughs) hey, closer relative, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, You also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. So dude, closer relative, guardian redeemer, other option. You get the property, you also get Ruth along with the property. How does that sound, pal? How would it sound to you? Yeah, he didn't have to say yes. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot uh, redeem it. Because I might endanger my own estate. Hey, I got an idea. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it because I don't know this woman. I even heard the same stories you did. I didn't fall in love with her like you did. I don't know her family. I don't know her language. She could be an Ohio State Buckeyes fan for all I know. I've got no idea. And frankly, I just can't risk it, right? So he's like, you, absolutely. Go right ahead. Check it out. And he does. And it could be the end of the story. And it would be a good story. <laughs> Except for the fact that God made a promise. And when God makes a promise, He will never break the promise. And so Boaz and Ruth, they ended up getting together. And they end up getting married. And at the end of the story, we see Naomi, bitter, holding her grandchild. And it's a really tender moment. She's holding Obed, and the women all around, the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he be famous throughout all of Israel. Uh, earlier we heard uh, a plug from, from Dylan to, uh, to join a group. I think one of the reasons why we do life together is moments like this. So that it wasn't, it wasn't Naomi, but it was the women around her. It wasn't Naomi, it wasn't the person herself, but it was those around her who could speak truth into her life when maybe she couldn't see it. It was the women around her who said, hey, you know what? You're not bitter. Not anymore. The Lord has been so good to you. It was the women around her, the people around, that could reflect back to her the sheer goodness of God and the blessing of God in her life. And we, and we see this, this story and, and this, this pitch of the, the woman who's, who's famous throughout all of Israel and the promise that's made. And God made good on that promise. Uh, Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse had a lot of kids. <laughs> and God says to a, a, a prophet, Samuel, and says, hey, listen, we're gonna change everything. We're gonna change the entire paradigm for thousands of years. Everything is going to be different. And so what Samuel does, what God tells Samuel In 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, he says, Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse, that grandchild of Obed of Bethlehem, I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And so he lines them all up in the house. And he's like, I don't even care which one gets to be king because someone, one of my kids is going to be king. So Samuel, like, get your horn and oil and like do your thing. It's happening. And, and Samuel goes up to the first one, He's like, not this one, second one. He's like, not this one, not this one, not this one. He goes all the way down the line. He goes, dude, I'm pretty sure I have the right address. Do you have any more sons? And he goes, yeah, I mean, there's one like out in the field, but dude, I is not like king material. This is not going to happen. He goes, we will stay standing until that kid gets here. And they do. And David steps up and steps onto the pages of history. He's anointed as the king of Israel. And then in 2 Samuel, another, another prophet, Nathan now, makes this promise and this pledge to David. He says in verse 16, 2 Samuel 7, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. You know how kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall? Your kingdom will never end, David. Somebody from your line. Ruth and Boaz had Obed. Obed had Jesse. Jesse had... David, David had more and more and more and more and more. Uh, 25 pregnancies later, we finally come to this beautiful line from Matthew chapter one, verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. From the line of David, his kingdom will never end. And wise men came and visited him. And Christmas happened. And that boy grew up. And 30-something years later, there was a moment when King Herod and the governor Pilate were in a room with Jesus. And they looked him dead in the eye. And they asked him, they asked him the question, are you, what people are saying about you, are you The king of the Jews. Are you you claiming to be a king in our presence? And Jesus stares down the power of Rome. And he answers this question this way. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. It is as you say, but my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom is going on. The kingdom doesn't end. But it's not a kingdom like you think about a kingdom. It's a kingdom of hearts. It's a kingdom of conscience. It is as you say, but my kingdom is not of this world, but it absolutely will never come to an end. I'm going to rule and I'm going to reign. Every other king along history is going to be a footnote because of what you are doing here. I take a step back. What a story. What a king. What a story. And all the while, all the while we can see how God was setting the table, how God was decorating, how God was preparing for this moment at Christmas, long before Christmas took place, how God was decorating the world, getting ready for a savior all along the way. And here's my hope for you as, as we end this year together, is that this isn't just a story on a page. it's your story so you have the opportunity to make this your story by saying yes to the king saying God you're in charge you're better at driving my life than I am so here are the keys the answer is yes before I even know what the question is go ahead God I don't just want this to be a story I want it to be my story I yield my life to you my king I think it's important that when Matthew shares that genealogy, he shares Ruth right there smack in the middle of it all. It's mostly fellas, but Ruth gets named. Because I think God wanted us to know, even though Naomi, even though mom gave up on God, God would never give up on her. I want you to know that no matter what your 2023 has been like, even if you find yourself at times giving up on God, He will never give up on you. This is the option, not to hear a story, but to make it your story. I want to invite you to stand up and let's pray to God together. And as I pray and as you sense that that yearning to say, I, I want Him, I want Him in charge of my life. Say yes to the Savior. Say I'm sorry for everything that I've done wrong. Thank you for providing a Savior, a help, a way out. Help me live a life worthy of this incredible calling that we've received. Let's pray together. Jesus, we're sorry for the ways that we contribute to the brokenness of this world, for all the ways that we've maybe tried to save ourselves. Thank you for providing this Savior in Jesus. Thank you for decorating for Christmas this entire time, thousands of years in the making. God, if you could have called this shot like this, 1,300 years ahead of time. What might you be up to in our life? What kind of hidden work might you be doing with our setbacks and with our tragedies? Help us to not give up on you. Because Jesus, you will never give up on us. You will always make a way. In your name we pray. Amen.